Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you everybody for coming. This is the last uh, talk in our uh, year-long series, Controversies in Church History. Tonight, the most sensitive of topics, the Church and the Holocaust, and the so-called history, myth, and responsibility. And uh, so we might even talk about it a little bit. If you don't know uh, a lot about the Holocaust, there's, there's a, there was a uh, survey recently released about the Americans and the knowledge of the Holocaust. Only like 40% of the people surveyed didn't know what Auschwitz was. Uh, it was even higher among millennials. So there is a lack of knowledge about the Holocaust. And so if you don't do a little bit here today, most of well, mostly, it's also about um, a really raging debate that's been simmering for couple decades now about the role of the church in all this, and in particular, and particular, uh, Pope Pius XII, which by the way, the background for my slides, that's actually Pius XII, and crowd like this. There's an arms outstretched for me like that. Uh, that's him there in the background, <laughs> so that you know. Um, so I want to talk about, start out and make a comparison, um, give you a couple of uh, evaluations of this Pope, Pius XII, from two different, two different eras from the immediate post-war, end of the war, post-war era, and from the more recent history, the last couple of decades. Um, in 1942, um, when Pius XII uh, gave a speech, gave a message, gave a message during World War II, the, um, the New York Times proclaimed, quote, the voice of Pius XII is a lonely voice in the silence and darkness enveloping Europe. There should be a uh, unquotation, un unquote there, but I didn't get to it in time, right? So, um, and on the death of Pius XII in 1958, he died uh, 15 years after the war, 13 years after the war, uh, Golda Meir, the future prime minister of the state of Israel, when she found him on his death, went on the floor of the United Nations in, uh, in New York and gave this message. We share in the grief of humanity the passing away of His Holiness Pope Pius XII. In a generation afflicted by wars and discords, he upheld the highest ideals of peace and compassion. When fearful martyrdom came to our people in the decade of Nazi terror, the voice of the Pope was raised for his victims. The life of our times was enriched by a voice speaking out great moral truths above the tumult of daily conflict. We mourn a great circumstance of peace. Leonard Bernstein, the director of the New York Philharmonic, also a Jewish man, of course, uh, when he found out what he was conducting in practice of the New York Philharmonic in 1958, uh, stopped uh, his orchestra in the middle of their practice and demanded a moment of silence uh, for Pope uh, Pius, who had uh, paid tribute to him because of his sacrifice of the Jews in the war. And so you see in the immediate aftermath of the war, Pius was actually, and by the way, I can multiply this, there were lots of um, positive mentions of Pius uh, on his death from Jewish organizations and from Jewish leaders, from you know, the secular press, if you like, in the 1940s and 50s. Fast forward 30 years. Uh, in 1998, uh, a book was published by a man named John Cornwell, who we'll come back to in this. Uh, the name of the book, by the way, if you haven't read it, is Hitler's Pope. Uh, in which John Cornwell proclaimed that Pius XII Pope was the most dangerous churchman in modern history, uh, without whom Hitler might never have been able to press forward with the Holocaust. His book, published in 1988, set up a flurry, mostly of popular works. All of which who painted uh, Pius XII as, you forgive my language, the biggest piece of crap who ever lived. He was a coward, he was evil, he was a Semite, he was all these things. 
Um, I can give you the names. I'll go through some of them, come back to some of them. Gary Wills, James Carroll, Daniel Goldhagen, David Kurtzer, all repeated these claims ad nauseum in a series of books for about the next 10 years. Uh, and I say this, by the way, one of the reasons I did this, this book made lots of money. It was a bestseller many times over. Um, these are the spectacular claims to make. At the same time, a few years later, David Goldhagen, his book, A Moral Reckoning, uh, more generally speaking, basically held uh, the Catholic Church responsible for the anti-Semitism that led to the Holocaust. Uh, you have the quotation there. The uh, Catholic Church was, Christianity was, but Catholic Church in particular was, according to his lights, the preeminent source of all modern anti-Semitism, unquote. So that leads to the obvious question, is any of this actually accurate uh, or true? Which is, of course, the question. Is the Church to blame for the Holocaust in any way? Uh, I mean, by the way, I should mention, I'm going to come back to this at the end of this. From what I can tell, especially among academics, this is still a sort of default position of the rest of the church. Uh, but there's a real deep suspicion of it uh, and its role in the war and everything, especially the war in the Holocaust. Uh, so let me get to that real quickly. We have to start with the Holocaust itself and what happened to the, uh, to the Jews in uh, the Holocaust. A little bit of brief background uh, on anti-Semitism in the 19th and 20th century Europe. There's a distinction. Uh, sometimes uh, scholars take this seriously, sometimes they downplay it, but I think it means all when I introduce this to you here. Uh, the distinction is between anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. Uh, Anti-Judaism is a, a sort of religious uh, prejudice, religious hatred, uh, based on Jewish religion, not necessarily their ethnic reference. Anti-Semitism is, of course, based purely on their ethnic status, being different ethnically, uh, racially, and so on and so forth. You will get a lot of debates in the literature about, you know, what was more important uh, in the 19th and 20th century. My general sense is that, for the most part, anti-Semitism was a bigger cause. Uh, although, again, of course, in practice, these things might not have been all that big of a deal. People, they just didn't like Jews, so they didn't like them, right? So keep that in mind. Um, the other thing to note about this is that a big change that happened in the 19th century was the introduction of modern racial theories, uh, modern theories about race, genetic racism. Um, going back to one other thing, of course, uh, Darwin's discoveries in the 19th century played a huge role in all of this, uh, which I should mention, by the way, that the church always basically condemned the social Darwinism. They never had much use for it. Um, and in general, they would, have just, they would have been definitely against modern racial theories. Uh, and I'll come back to the end as well. Anti-Semitism, anti of course, was prevalent uh, in 19th and 20th century Europe. In some places, um, worse than others. One of the places, by the way, which was not known for being terribly uh, anti-Semitic uh, prior to World War II was actually Germany, if you can imagine. Uh, it didn't have that big of a reputation. If you're wondering why, one of the reasons they didn't have that big of a Jewish population, as you're going to see, most of the Jewish population in uh, Europe in the 20th century, 19th century, is actually in Eastern Europe, in Western Europe. It's an important thing to keep in mind as we go forward with this. But uh, other places like the Netherlands, um, uh, even Poland, not known as being particularly anti-Semitic, especially for Germany, this is important. Again, this isn't necessarily something that came, uh, that people saw coming, is my point, uh, from the life of the Holocaust, with its scores of death and destruction. And I'm sure you know something about Nazi racial theory, but it's just to get the, the basics out of the way. Um, 
Nazi racial beliefs had it that the uh, Germans descended from a warlike, quote unquote, Aryan race that had conquered, conquered much of Europe in, in uh, prehistory. Uh, that in fact it was the source of the Germanic peoples in Central Europe, of which they were not necessarily all that pure, they had to be purified, but they were the purest descendants of this Aryan race. Uh, and that this race, this Aryan blood, was pure, superior to other races. Uh, Jews preeminently, um, Jewish people tend to get it off worse than all this, but also other races. Slavs, uh, the Roma, everybody knows what the Roma are. Gypsies, Gypsies that's the colloquial term for it. Um, they were also included in this mix of peoples that, uh, yeah, were racially inferior to, to the Nazis. Um, and of course, what came along with this, and especially as you get into, uh, as published, as um, uh, actually gets into, um, uh, I don't think there's a book of mine, Tom, which he published in the mid-1920s, uh, there was a need in his mind to expel these races from the German homeland, to purify the race, uh, but also for something else, to establish a Lebensraum, particularly in Eastern Europe. This was something that, by the way, had been kicked around by German thinkers since the late 1890s, Abrams Brown just means living space. Uh, and it meant the fact that they're referring to this in the 1890s, I mean the pre-Nazi um, pre thinkers, uh, of the need for more room for German expansion. The German people were becoming too numerous. They needed more land to occupy and live. Uh, and therefore, they wanted a colony in Eastern Europe somewhere. What's going to happen to the Nazis, of course, is going to take us a step further. Not only do we want the land, we want the land cleansed of its inferior races which, by the way, will include Jews. It will also include lots, and I mean lots, of Slavic peoples in the, uh, in the uh, mindset. But Hitler and the Nazis take that and turn it into a, an exceedingly murderous doctrine, as you can kind of uh, tell from the description. And so what does this uh, happen? Uh, and I'm, by the way, I have to go, I have to skip by the rise of Nazis, even though it's very dramatic. They come to power in 1933. And uh, actually, that's the wrong date, June 1935, the Nuremberg Laws. They move pretty quickly to start persecuting Jews. They start passing laws, banning them from things like the civil administration, um, uh, keeping them out of jobs. But in particular, the laws passed in 1935 uh, strike at their alleged impurity. Um, the uh, laws uh, were designed to rid them, ethnically speaking. Uh, they, uh, Nuremberg Laws and other things forbade Jews to marry uh, non-Jews or even to have sex with them. Um, they were also then expelled from the civil service, among other things, and more or less, I think officially, basically had their citizenship as members of the Reich, the Reich is the German Reich, the state, uh, stripped of them. Also very important, I'll come back to that. Uh, three years later, in 1938, a young Jewish man in Paris killed the uh, German ambassador there, Ernst von Roth, <coughs> in retaliation for this persecution. Uh, this murder led to, or was used as an excuse for, the so-called Kristallnacht in November of 1938, when Jewish thugs went around attacking Jewish businesses and killing about 90 people in the process. It was followed shortly thereon by legislation liquidating Jewish businesses um, and began a systematic roundup of Jews who were still living in the country as they began to round up not just Jews, but also Roma, uh, homosexuals, disabled, and putting them in detention centers. This is the beginning, they're sort of toying around the idea of expelling people. Um, yeah, as well as think, uh, people like trade unionists, communists, 
uh, even uh, religious groups like Jehovah's Witnesses before they see these cans. So you're having this uh, begin, uh, almost an experiment with that, as a series of measures. And I should mention this, by the way, historians have, this is pretty much a consensus. Um, there was no long-term plan involved in all this. The Nazis pretty much did this sort of, you know, point A, not really know where point B or point C would go, necessarily. There was at least that we have evidence for. Uh, bless you. Um, and so what happens is they begin um, a sort of trial run in 1939 um, with the first extermination programs, which are aimed at those disabled people, uh, mentally, uh, mentally and physically handicapped uh, Germans, including children, um, are, are killed by gas in rehearsal for the sort of larger scale stuff that they plan out later on. Uh, what happens is, uh, because this is happening in Germany, uh, and people have relatives in these, uh, these hospitals, word gets out, and people start protesting. In particular, the Catholic Church protests a lot, and eventually they uh, draw so much attention to it, they have to stop the program in 1940. Uh, by then, some 200,000 people have been put to death uh, by this program. Uh, at the same time, I have this, I'm skimming over the Second World War. Of course, they've already been told in 1939, and they begin, um, as soon as they uh, conquer uh, Poland, uh, the mass, ex mass execution of Poles, particularly elites, people with higher, uh, higher education, people who can run their government for them, their goal is to liquidate the ruling class of the Poles, and, they start, and by the way, shooting them. <laughs> different forms of execution uh, for different purposes. Um, on the other hand, the Jews begin their first, their first thought basically is to really rid Germany of them. So they start moving them to ghettos in 1939 in Poland. And again, Poland, by the way, has the biggest population in Europe of Jews, three million before the war. Most of them will be gone by the end of it. Um, in fact, still official policy up to 1941 to resettle them somewhere else. In fact, they were German, the Jews, excuse me, the Nazis were still basically allowing German Jews to obtain a visa to immigrate by the until the end of 1941. Uh, there was actually a plan at one point to ship them all to Madagascar, which never came to anything. But the thing that uh, sets off um, the final solution, as they will come to call it, and that's one thing I want to mention, by the way, if you don't know about the Germans and the way they did this, they tried to hide all this. Uh, and even in their uh, private documents, they, were, they never referred to this as, hey, we're killing all the Jews. Uh, they would talk about the final solution. They would use euphemisms for it. I'll come back to that, but it's important in a moment. The thing that leads to this all kind of going where it goes, is the invasion of Russia in 1941. Why? Again, it was part of their plan to carve out a Lebensraum in Eastern Europe. They already got in Poland, they wanted part of the Soviet Union, you know, Ukraine. Uh, and just again, uh, I don't wanna, this is about the Jewish Holocaust, and it's a unique thing. Um, their plan, by the way, by the end of it, literally was to kill every Jew in Europe, all you know, numbers of Jews, 10 or 11 million of them. Hitler was also planning, according to the historian Lawrence Reese, on killing 20 or 30 million more Slavic peoples just to make room for this uh, German leader as well, to give you an idea of the scale of their plans by the end of this. And so as they advance through Soviet territories, their SSS Einsatzgruppen, which is their advanced killing unit, would go around killing Jews, killing communists. Uh, again, uh, civilians, randomly, but specifically Jews, uh, essentially. Um, the first actual documented decision to actually terminate Arab Jew doesn't come out until the Vanasse Conference in 1942, the big conference of Nazi heads 
decide what they're gonna do about, um, about the uh, Jewish question. Uh, we still, by the way, don't have uh, an actual like smoking gun a document where Hitler says, yes, kill all the Jews. To give you an idea of how, well, two reasons for that. One, the Nazis were destroying records. The other reason is that the Soviets, when they uh, advanced from the east to the end of the war, they destroyed all the camps and destroyed all the records uh, on the way to Berlin. So we don't have quite, quite perhaps um, the uh, documents that we need. He might not have written it down. Uh, he was that kind of, um, kind of person, apparently. Uh, and so you have the beginnings of the full-scale, full-scale European-wide extermination of Jews uh, program started by the end of 1941. And I'm showing you a map in a moment. Virtually all of the extermination centers are in Poland. They're all in Eastern Europe. Um, um, people will be shipped from the Western countries. I'm going to show you, by the way, a list of you know, how many Jews died in which countries. It's actually a, uh, the vast bulk of it's in three countries in Eastern Europe. Um, tiny number come from Western Europe, basically, comparatively speaking, uh, to be killed there. Um, mainly in places like Auschwitz, uh, Madonik, Koblenka, the other famous one. Uh, you have, of course, work camps, which are slightly separate from this. Uh, work camps, which are slightly separate from this, except uh, from the gas chambers, they don't work to death. Um, again, I have to breathe over some of this for the sake of time. But um, the Nazis continued doing this right until the end of the war. Uh, Hitler thought of this, thought this was going to be his, um, his most lasting achievement as Fuhrer, to rid the, the country of Jews. Uh, and so up to the very time that the, the Allies were actually came in to actually get rid of the camps, they were killing them right up to the end. They actually apparently ignored, I mean, it looks like they ignored the actual war for this, just to give you how crazy this is. Um, which resulted, uh, the number of Jews they've thrown out, I should mention this about all the numbers I'm mentioning, they're all kind of guesstimates. There really isn't, we do not have, I don't think, capability to get exact numbers. The number is something like 5.93, 6, whatever, 6 million Jews, something like that. Could have been more, could have been less, we don't know. Um, yeah, uh, and one of the things I want to mention about this and, and emphasize and come back to it, and I'll show you in a moment, is that the Holocaust is very much a war crime. Why? Because I don't think it would have happened that way without the war. Let me show you what I mean. Just uh, with the, uh, the uh, maps that I'm going to show you. Um, so you have your map of all the extermination centers in in, uh, in Europe, and um, uh, you can see I, I, you can see this here. The little sort of like soccer ball looking things are actually ghettos, and you can see where they're they're most numerous. Again, almost all in the eastern parts of Europe. Almost all the death centers are in Poland. I think there's one up in uh, Belarus, maybe another one in Russian territory somewhere. But that's about it. It mostly takes place in Poland. Um, and uh, there's a reason for this. There's a reason for this. Um, it's because this Nazis, of course, go in there and they, they don't just take over. They destroy their government completely. They destroy their state. They destroy their, their state personnel. Uh, <coughs> same thing when they move into Western, uh, Western parts of the Soviet Union. They destroy the government there. Just as they kind of they don't quite do it in the same way. At the end of the war, they're going to invade uh, 1944. They're going to invade Hungary, but then their ally, they go and invade there. I mention that because those are the three uh, those are the three areas where the biggest numbers and the highest percentage of Jews are killed, and it's not a coincidence. Uh, why? Because uh, the historian Timothy Snyder pointed out in his book about the Holocaust that wherever Jews were stripped of citizenship, 
in the New Reich, or in these countries where their states were basically obliterated, they no longer had the protection of a nation state. Uh, the only thing that's gonna protect you from a group of people who have the power and resources and weaponry of a modern nation state from killing you if they want to, is another nation state. And so the wiping out of these states, and by the way, the same thing happened, of course, when the United States government invaded Iraq. Wipe out Iraq, all of a sudden, um, uh, minorities like Christians and Yazidis are, free, are fair game for terrorists because there's no state left to protect them. And to give you a last uh, emphasis of this, this is the death toll according to Wolfgang Bam, the historian uh, written history of study in 1996. You can kind of see the vast majority from those three countries, about five, five to six million from Poland, the Soviet Union, and Hungary. Um, and it's pretty much, a, and by the way, it's pretty much a, a strong correlation there with the states they conquered, or even occupied below that, Germany, Czechoslovakia, they occupied that at the end of the war. Uh, Romania was an ally, the Netherlands they occupied. Uh, and from France on down, things were, it's hard to say it this way, they weren't nearly as, the, the percentages went down. Notice, by the way, uh, not many Jews died in Italy. Uh, not many at all, actually, uh, for reasons we'll come back to. So keep all that in mind. It was very much a war crime done in wartime. So, oh god, that's uh, three times in a row. Oh no, I, that's not. Okay, moving on, moving on. Um, so, what was the church doing during the Holocaust? What did it do? Why, um, uh, why is it sometimes implicated in blame for this massacre? Something we'll have to stop and talk about in the age of, um, uh, in the 1920s and 30s. Um, the Vatican is a state. It has its own diplomatic apparatus. Why do I mention this? Um, it has holdings. It has. It is an institution like that. I need to stress though, because it has, you know, it has, you know, uh, it has relationships with all these Catholic churches. It doesn't own them. Uh, it's a state, but it's not a nation state. You know, there's a difference. There are two differences. One is that you can't just order people around and do what he wants. Uh, you just can't. People just like what are you going to do to me? Reason being, of course, that the thing a nation state had, the Pope doesn't have, is a monopoly violent force. As Joseph Stalin once uh, uh, asked, uh, how many divisions the Pope has, he has none. So again, keep that in mind. And so the church, especially, this is, uh, this is old, but I have to go through it here a little bit, especially after the French Revolution, a couple of century and a half before this, um, very concerned, again, to keep um, the independence of its institutions in various countries, especially where they are antagonistic to it, uh, as free as possible. And so you get the church eventually, and it takes them a long time, signing concordats with modern governments. Most famously, and firstly, in the Lateran Treaty of 1929, with the fascist government of Mussolini. Uh, the church had never recognized the state of Italy since Stalin in 1861, vice versa, relationships not good. Um, and I don't have time to go into Mussolini, he was an atheist and fascist too, he didn't have much use for the church, but. Uh, he didn't play, need to play ball with them because he was fighting for Catholic. Uh, and this, by the way, is still the treaty that governs the relationship between Italy uh, and the church of this day. Um, still didn't get along very well uh, in the long run. But they did this partly to, again, uh, give them some legal bargaining power with these regimes so that they did violate um, those laws. They could at least come back and complain about it. Uh, that was the thinking about behind the Vatican diplomacy. It was also the thinking behind negotiating with Adolf Hitler once he came to power in 1933. Uh, and by the way, because when the Nazi party first entered the uh, German Bundestag in 1930, 
The German Catholic Church had actually forbidden its members to actually uh, become members of the Nazi Party. They knew what it taught. They knew it was against Catholic teaching. Um, this changed with the, with the Reichskonkord, as they called it, the, uh, the uh, Concord of the German Reich in 1933. Again, for the same reasons. Uh, they wanted to have it in writing that the Germans were going to do this for them, that they were going to have some sort of protection, legal protection for schools, for youth institutions, youth organizations, stuff like this, universities, and those sorts of things within the Reich. I mention this because this is one of the criticisms people have of Pius XII, because as you can see, uh, he was not Pope at the time. He was very much a part of this. Eugenio Pagelli, who was Pius XII, um, was a diplomat. Uh, from a family of, not people diplomat, but from a Roman family with deep ties to the papacy, who had been members of the papal household in Curia. Uh, he becomes a papal diplomat early in his career during World War uh, I, rises up very quickly through the uh, diplomatic service, uh, and becomes Secretary of State to Pius XI, his predecessor. And it is actually under um, Eugenio Pacelli's uh, urging that he um, does negotiate with uh, the Concordat, with, the, with Hitler. And again, we do know, by the way, he didn't like Hitler very much, didn't care for uh, Nazis very much. Um, but again, he had the same, very, uh, same sort of thinking. Uh, Eugenio Pacelli was a fairly uh, conservative guy. I mean, that prudentially speaking, personally speaking, very cautious. Uh, diplomats tend to be that way. They don't want to give offense. Uh, this is one of the things people note about Pius XI. Uh, I have to ask the question down there, was he personally anti-Semitic? Um, there's no evidence that he was at all, actually. Uh, he did actually have, I hate to put it in these terms, like some of my best friends are Jewish, he did have one of his best friends from his childhood was actually Jewish. So there's no evidence he was actually a personal anti-Semite in all of this. A lot of the criticism will focus on his diplomatic efforts for what happens is, by 1937, uh, the relationship between the, the Reich and the Church begins to deteriorate. And the reason for this is very simple. Hitler and most of his inner circle really hated Christianity, uh, and particularly they hated the Church. Um, in an early speech, uh, Hitler had proclaimed, quote, the priest is a political enemy of the German, Germans and we shall destroy. Uh, later on, one of his officials claimed that, quote, after they had, that's not a quote, after they had destroyed the Bolsheviks and the Jews, they would quote that, the, that quote the Catholic Church would be the only remaining enemy of the quote. Uh, long term, the Nazis wanted to get rid of the Church, uh, even though they were sort of three or four <coughs> levels down the order of their uh, insanity. Um, and so, because of um, interference with again Church um, educational institutions, uh, trying to um, force uh, Catholic youth into Nazi youth organizations. Um, under the influence, largely, of Eugenio Pacelli and a couple other German bishops, um, Pius XI uh, published, in 1937, a faithful encyclical, which was written in German, not in Latin. And the reason why, of course, is it's aimed at the German people, uh, so they could read it. Um, yes, sir? This is pre-Vatican II, so was that very, was that, was it normal to pub no. the church to publish in non-Latin? It was, it, yeah, people noticed, and that was the point, yeah, to make the point, this is, and it is, it's pretty strong condemnation of, what it was, yes, um, Nazi racial theory. Uh, not just Nazi, but any sort of theory that exalts the state, any sort of theory that exalts any race over any other. Um, uh, it, and this is the thing, it really does piss off the Nazis. They really hate the Pius XI, and they hate Pius XII. Um, 
They don't do anything, by the way, because they're afraid of causing murders. The church has power in that sense in Germany. Um, but it definitely gets them into bad, it deteriorates the relationship between um, the Reich and, um, uh, and, the, and the Vatican. And they actually um, will smuggle into Germany and have people with motorcycles run around uh, Germany uh, and give them to parishes and stuff. And it's read on all the pulpits on Palm Sunday in 1957. Uh, which again, uh, this is, and by the way, this is the first time any, any organization really internationally had criticized um, Nazism this way. So you do have this prior to the war, this one big sort of condemnation of what uh, Germany was doing. Well, at this point, again, they hadn't started this sort of actual death machine going. It really doesn't start until, of course, the war is on. So what do they do during the war? What's the church doing? What is the Pope doing? The first and most, probably most strenuous, actually the two most strenuous condemnations of the Nazis by um, churchmen, uh, the first one's from uh, Archbishop von Gehlen in Munster in 1941. Uh, I think this is in June and July of uh, 1941. He issues a series of sermons in which he condemns the Nazi euthanasia program uh, in very explicit terms. He's a... Um, um, they are violating people's human dignity, their human rights. Uh, again, Hitler, actually Hitler wouldn't want to get him dead, but again, they didn't want to make a martyr of him. They're going to wait for after the war and get him. Uh, this again, this had a big effect. This probably one of the things that helped stop the euthanasia program in the first place eventually. Um, although again, during the war, again, he didn't do all that much, partly because he was being watched by the Nazis at that point. The second real, um, uh, point at which the church spoke out. I should mention, by the way, by 1942, they had a good idea, by the end of 1942, they had a good idea where they did, and again, there's debate about this, when the church knew that mass killings were going to happen or did happen. Uh, it took a while for that to actually become clear. By the end of 1942, they actually knew. In July of that year, 1942, the Dutch bishops uh, uh, issued a circular letter condemning national, uh, Nazi racial theory, naming Nazi officials in the occupied Netherlands who were deporting Jews uh, to camps. Um, in reaction, uh, the uh, Nazis round up 40,000 Catholics who were actually ba uh, baptized Jews, send them off to Auschwitz to be killed. Uh, I need to come back to this because this reprisal is very important for me going forward to learn. Even with that, at the end of 1942, Pius XII gave a speech, a radio message, in which he um, he pretty clearly is talking about the Nazis. Um, I'll read a quotation from him. He says, um, quote, humanity owes this vow to those hundreds of thousands who without any fault of their part, sometimes only because of their nationality or race have been consigned to death uh, or to a slow decline. Um, another translation of this could be marked for death or gradual extinction. Uh, and I should mention, it's a, it's a long message, and it's not terrible. He never comes out and actually mentions the Nazis. They, they, they know he's mentioning them. Um, it's the last time he'll actually talk about this in public in the course of the war. And in fact, before this, the Allies had been actually critical of him uh, in their memorandum. They wanted him to speak out more against what the Nazis were doing. He didn't do it partly because of what happened to the, uh, to the Dutch. He feared there'd be more reprisals if he had uh, came out and spoke out against them in that way. But that wasn't the only thing that the church actually did. There were rescue efforts. <laughs> Uh, in several places. Most of which, none of these, by the way, are one thing. They're not coordinated from Rome or anything like that. They're basically done in individual places by individual churches or by individual people. 
Uh, in Rome itself, uh, if you don't know, towards the end of the war, the Nazis actually invaded Italy and conquered it, took over Rome. When they did this, uh, Pius opened all the religious houses in Rome to Jews, gave shelter to about 5,000 of them, saved their lives. Uh, you also have the individuals, very rare individuals, like uh, Marie Benoit, a French priest, a French Capuchin, who was actually in Italy at the start of the war, goes back to France for the sole purpose of actually trying to shuttle Jews out of France. And when, again, the numbers are kind of, uh, kind of odd about this in terms of how many he saved. Um, but he did all sorts of things. Um, uh, uh, procured false papers, he had a printing press in a monastery in France where he was at, they printed false uh, documents that didn't get Jews out of there. Um, again, and uh, he's, by the way, one of, uh, one of the Catholics listed at Yad Vashem, if you don't know what that is, that's the Holocaust Memorial in, uh, in Israel, to they have a place for the righteous Gentiles who actually um, helped either shelter, uh, save Jews, hide them, get them out of occupied areas. They list about, eight, I think the number at my, my notes that don't, uh, 8,484 uh, are listed in their online database. So we're talking about, a, uh, again, comparatively speaking, a small number of people. And the number of people that were saved is, is not a debate. We don't really know. Uh, the estimates I've heard, somewhere around 700,000 uh, Jews were saved by these efforts. Which, again, compared to the numbers that are slaughtered, isn't that much. But probably more than any other organization, I think would be very safe to say. Besides, of course, the armies that liberated Europe. Then finally, Pius made um, diplomatic efforts. Uh, he had his papal nuncios do the same thing in the countries where they could do this, open up their, their, uh, their religious houses to Jews. Um, he also, by the way, did give at least his blessing, and this is something I'm kind of still, it still seems murky, I couldn't figure it out, but um, there were uh, some efforts, apparently, at least to give moral support to uh, resistance movements in Germany. In particular, there's a book published a few years ago called The Church of Spies, The Pope's Secret War Against Hitler, in which the author claimed that Pius XII was part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. It appears he mainly gave his blessing to, to his credit, several attempts to do so, including, if you've ever seen the movie um, Valkyrie, about the von, Stauffner, von Stauffenberg plot, he gave his uh, okay for this as well. Um, so behind the scenes, he did several things to try to undermine Hitler. Um, so, the church did during the war. Which brings me back to my original question, okay, how do we go from end of the war, he's a hero, to 1990s, he's a dirt ball. And this brings us to what we call, sometimes what people have called the pious wars. Um, because that, those books that were published in the late 1990s set off uh, an argument, it's more or less died off to a certain degree in the popular press. It's still ongoing in the academic world. Uh, this actually begins even earlier than this. And you kind of have to go back to the post-war period. Um, it was only, I believe, in 1944, 1945, the idea, the only criticism that really came from uh, anyone with regard to uh, Pius and the Jews during the war uh, was a story that was actually spread by the KGB that he had been a supporter of the Nazis, that he had been a, uh, someone who aided in the death of the Jews. Came to nothing in the immediate post-war uh, period. But in 1963, a German uh, playwright uh, named Rock Helmuth published a play called The Deputy, which uh, painted Pius XII as someone who was basically Hitler's pope, basically. Uh, his uh, goal was to get Jews killed. I believe the play is like seven hours long. I'm not sure you anybody sit through that. Um, and it ignited the first sort of round of, if you like, academic uh, discourse about the role of Pius in the war. Uh, several historians, the late 1960s, from the 1970s, 
the butt of this, a couple of little Jewish historians uh, who, again, brought out some of the claims uh, that I've already made. I should mention, by the way, one of the reasons why this is still ongoing, the Vatican is very, 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 very reluctant to release all of its archives. Uh, and they didn't release very little by the 1960s, so it was hard for people to defend bias you know, have the information. They're still releasing, they haven't released all the documents that is, is pontificate as of yet. Um, one thing about Rolf Helmuth, he apparently had some sort of relationship with the KGB. That's apparently where he got the idea for the story from in the first place. Uh, if you're wondering, by the way, why the KGB would be uh, involved in all this, uh, Pius XII was a really, really fierce anti-communist. Uh, in the post-war period, um, uh, in elections in places like France and uh, in Italy in 1946-1948, there were communist parties, who had a fairly wide following, especially in Italy. Uh, the CIA worked with the Pope in Italy to make sure they didn't get elected in Italy. This was part of the payback uh, for that. Um, this kind of dies out by the end of the 1980s. What happens to start all this is in 1997, uh, an article was published in the, uh, in the New Yorker by James Carroll. Uh, James Carroll, if you don't know, was a former Catholic priest who left the church of the 1970s uh, and uh, is a rather fierce critic of it, to say the least. Um, and he's the one who introduced this idea back in general circulation. The long article claiming bias has been silent in the face of evil. Again, the whole idea of a coward, a collaborator, all this stuff. Um, and it was a year later, of course, that John Cornwell, the British historian, uh, published Hitler's Pope. Uh, and again, I hate to put it in these terms, but one of the things we'll get into in a moment is that this is partly actually a matter of intra-church politics. Because one of the things that happened early in the 1990s was the cause for the beatification of Pius XII opened. Uh, and James Carroll, uh, if you don't know, is a very, very, very liberal Catholic. Women's ordination, um, you name it, wants the church to change all these things. Same thing with John Cornwell. Uh, and this is almost certainly a way of criticizing John Paul II vicariously. Right? Brand uh, Pius XII as Hitler's Pope, you associate him with the conservative party days. And I'm not making this up, by the way. This is something they, they make these parallels themselves. Um, and I know this because his critics point, uh, their critics of these books and several others point this out. Um, this debates about a lot more than just Pius XII. It gets into intra-Catholic debates, uh, intra-Catholic debates about those sorts of things. Um, it also, of course, gets taken up by Jewish historians who have bigger fish to fry than just the Holocaust. I mentioned Daniel Goldhagen, you've had other, several other Jewish historians, want to blame essentially all of, all of the ill of modern Judaism and modern Jewish people on the Catholic Church uh, from this, uh, from this uh, episode in World War II. Um, I won't go through a name all the, all the critics who responded. The most prominent one, by the way, popularly speaking, was David Dallin, who's actually a rabbi himself, um, uh, for a book called The Myth of Hitler's Pope, was one of the ones who did this. But there was, there was a whole avalanche of books back and forth about this, uh, about this topic. Uh, and as I mentioned before, I think a lot of this actually is, uh, well, I'll get to this in a second. Um, Um, these are proxy wars for other things. Uh, I really do believe that. Not, not necessarily as I, I haven't made it clear. Enough. There are things you can legitimately criticize Pius XII for. Uh, but the vitriol uh, against him, when I first approached this, didn't make any sense to me. Because you can definitely, by the way, and I'll come to this in a moment, make the case he could have spoken out more forcefully. He could have used uh, uh, his moral authority as Pope to try to, um, 
um, to try to stop the Nazis from doing it. That's a legitimate, I think, argument to make. Um, but to give you an example of, okay, who's to blame here? You know, who's more relative to blame for you know, not speaking out? There was a conference in Evian, 1938 in France, uh, where the Western powers met to, to discuss what to do about the Jews. They knew it was happening in 1938. I'm talking about the British, the French, the United States. Um, there was a plan, the Jews wanted to actually evacuate their people and move them to Palestine. The British, of course, were in uh, control of Palestine at the time. They said no, wouldn't do it. There were lots of reasons for it. They had an opportunity to get them out. They wanted to do that. Um, FDR. Uh, 1939, it was, it was like 40,000 Jews applied for asylum, sent a whole ship of people over to the United States and turned them away. Um, my point is, I'm not saying FDR is evil, but the sort of disparity in the terms of the relentlessness of the attacks are biased as well. Tell them that there's something more going on here than just, oh, this is just straightforward evidence. No, it's not. There is a little bit of, there's a lot going on actually. Uh, one of the things, of course, is there are inter-Jewish debates about anti-Semitism and, and its legacy, right? Because, you know, of course, it's been a really great century for the Jews, right, after what happened in World War II. Um, I, there is a search for, okay, who would find sort of one cause for this? Um, um, things like that in the background. But also the changing role of the Holocaust in American life. One of the things, uh, I'm going to read a really interesting book um, this in graduate school. It's called The Holocaust in American Life by Peter Novick. And it was about the way that Holocaust has been perceived in American culture since the 1940s. Um, it didn't, it wasn't that big of a deal until really the 1970s, 1980s. It's become much more prominent in people's uh, minds for a lot of reasons. Uh, in the immediate post-war period, people didn't want to talk about it. It was still too fresh in people's memories. Plus, of course, you had the Cold War going on. One of the reasons why this didn't explode earlier, or didn't explode in the 1960s, of course, is there was a consensus in the immediate post-war period among Western powers. Got to stop the communists, got to stop the Oh, we had to fill apart then in the 60s. Uh, and so a lot of this has to do with changing things in Western life and against the background of it. Um, and so you have all these things in the background of this debate, which I think exacerbated my point. Um, made it hard, by the way, to come to a fair assessment. In researching this, I'm, I have to tell you, basically, there's basically two, two viewpoints. Pius is great, Pius is the devil. And it comes with it. So uh, it, 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 uh, it, it um, it uh, brings about those sorts of passions, right, I think, for obvious reasons. And so the way to make of this, this particular, by the way, if I haven't made it clear already from what you've heard, from what I can tell, for the most part, people have dropped the whole Hitler's Pope thing at this point, 10 years, 15, 20 years on. John Cornwall hasn't, but he's a hack, to be bluntly honest with you. <laughs> um, more serious historians still make, still make the, uh, the uh, criticism of Pius and the Church, generally speaking, could have done more, didn't didn't do enough, had more authority to act, and didn't. So what about this question of the silence of the church? Um, first thing that has to be addressed, was there anti-Semitism in the church? Of course there was. Uh, this is an old legacy. That should, there's no point in denying that charge. That's actually true. Having said all that, it doesn't mean every Catholic, and they weren't, obviously. And as I mentioned, there were people that actually helped Jews. Not every person was a slobbering anti-Semite who got up in the morning saying, how many Jews can I kill today? But it was there. We do know, by the way, there were um, there were Catholic, Catholic collaborators in the Holocaust in Poland. Again, usually minor figures. The most notorious, by the way, figure uh, who collaborated with the Nazis in the Holocaust was actually a Catholic priest. 
Joseph Tiso, who was actually made the ruler of Slovakia, um, or the Germans went and invaded Czechoslovakia. He was made its actual president, if you like. Um, and, um, and so you had you know, some spectacular instances of collaboration there. Um, so it did come to that in, uh, in certain areas. And of course, just people in general didn't, if it was just a great uprising against, um, uh, in general against uh, Nazis in Germany like that place, right? And then finally, what about the church and moral authority? Because that's where the most serious criticisms come from. Um, not just people like, and I, I mean, I don't have much respect for John Cornwell. Most of the people I mentioned, I think, they're, I think they are hacks. Uh, however, there are people I do respect. Um, one of which you should read his articles. I'm a, uh, Father um, Martin Romheimer, who's a German priest of Jewish descent. He's a convert to Christianity and comes to Catholicism. He wrote a very challenging essay in the uh, it's a conservative magazine that's called First Things back in 2003, uh, where he makes about as sharp, I think, an argument as you can that if Pius had acted sooner, um, if he had used the church and moral authority, especially, and this is where I'm going with this, before the war started. Quite frankly, I think after the war started, I don't think there's anything to do with people on the altar here. Um, once the war started, the only thing that was going to stop Hitler was another army, and the Pope didn't have an army. At least that's my, that's my opinion, anyway. But before that, again, he was a Pope before that, but he had a lot of influence with Pius XI. Um, I mean, this goes back to signing that Concordat, right? The reason why, for example, when the Nuremberg Laws were passed, Pius XII, Pius XII didn't have any, they thought that, they thought that was wrong. That was a violation of people's human rights. They didn't speak out because they were worried uh, about that Concord Act. They had signed, made a deal with the Nazis. And if you're wondering, this is, and this is where you get the criticism. Well, he was a coward, he didn't speak out, he was a coward, he didn't do this. Uh, again, do I necessarily buy that? Not necessarily. But I can see a path where if he had spoken out, again, things might have gone differently. Because remember, the Nazis were hiding what they did for the last minute. It maybe he had brought, perhaps, uh, the church's um, attention that the church could bring to it. Maybe that would have gotten the Western powers more involved. Which, by the way, if you're looking for a scapegoat besides the Nazis for this, I would say that it would be Britain and, the governments of Britain and France for not acting sooner against Hitler, much more than Pius. Nonetheless, nonetheless, I think that's a reasonable argument to make. I do want to point out one other thing about this, though, as well. One of the things that's definitely changed in the last hundred years uh, about the papacy. There's an idea that I, when I first started investigating this, it seemed like, and I'm not sure if it's just my perception or maybe the perception of uh, Pius's critics, that the Pope was responsible for sort of everything in the world, and that's why he should have gone off and done more, because he's sort of the world moral conscience. And I confess, uh, I'm a adult convert myself, and I was baptized in 2003. I've never thought of the church as being the sort of world's conscience. Uh, and so I wonder where they got that idea from. And, and, you know, it's kind of staring me in the face. They've got that idea from popes, like, for example, John Paul II, who used his moral authority to undercut, of course, the, the Soviet regime, right? And this is where you get, again, more serious people like Eamon Duffy. I mean, Eamon Duffy is a, he's a great Catholic historian. Uh, in my, my, my time period, my area of studies, uh, Britain, England, that's his, in the same time period. Um, he made the same comparison. Well, if Pius XII had acted as boldly as John Paul II would, differently. Um, again, I don't necessarily, I buy that, I can buy that for the pre-war era. I don't buy it when, once the war starts. Uh, I mention that because, uh, again, I, the reason why I think there's, there are problems with this idea, I mean, I, the idea that the church's moral authority is just sort of universal like that, I mean, yes it is in a way, but that's not really the Pope's charism to be the conscience of the world. 
And I know it's a good thing, by the way. I know it's a great thing, you know, for example, in World War I, Benedict XV took time to try to try to get a peace conference together to stop the war. Had no effect. Great thing that he did it. I'm glad that he did it. Hope should always be for peace. Um, but I just don't think war will always enough when you're talking about things like war and the United States. Again, that's the difference between him being, yeah, it's a state and a nation state. This is the only thing that's going to stop the Nazis at the time of the war with a nation state. And so I think that's a, the argument's a little overdone when I can see some of the justice in it. <coughs> and so a few takeaways, just to give you uh, in this, uh, in this uh, my lecture. One, uh, whatever he was, Pius may have been too timid, he may have been, he can take him, whatever. He was not a collaborator. There's no way. He did not like Nazism. Uh, he he uh, had no use for um, Nazi racial theories. Some of his best friends were Jews. Yes, he had, yeah. My point is he was not personally anti-Semitic. Um, I, I admit that made me really angry when I first read it. It still makes me angry. This is a slur. He was not a Jewish pope. Um, uh, he was not a, a piece of dung. <laughs> uh, I'll say that clearly. Um, the church did try to help the Jews in some regards once the, the killing started. Some parts of it. Uh, one of the things I, I, other things I really, 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 really resent about the critics of Pius, they sometimes act as if, well, if he just ordered his priests to go out and do this more and more Jews are going to live. And I'm thinking, what, he's going to, what, demand they commit acts of martyrdom? I mean, can he do it? Is, is, he, is he allowed to do that? I don't think he is. Uh, and I'm not sure anybody, and that's the thing, again, the Pope is not a dictator. He's not a military leader. He can't just order people to do that. Uh, and so it's one of the things I get up on this. But individually, Jews did help. Some of the institutions did. Uh, excuse me, the church did help. Jewish parts of it. And it's documented because it's facts. But the church, uh, the church and Pius might have done more. That is a fair criticism. That is not unfair. And by the way, at the back of this, and I didn't even have time to get into this in, the other main big argument people make against the church in terms of the Holocaust is a much broader one about its legacy of uh, anti-Semitism going back before the Holocaust, which I think there's also truth to that as well, which I don't have time to get into here. But, but, I think um, as Catholics, we do have a responsibility because of that legacy to speak honestly about the Holocaust. Um, and uh, to defend, I think you should defend Pius. I don't think he deserves the treatment. Does not mean he's beyond criticism by any means. Uh, I mean, you can make those criticisms. I don't think it's, I don't think it's disloyal to make criticisms of Pope that way. Well, it's done, you know, respectfully and everything. Um, it's very hard when you're in that situation. I mean, the Nazis put people in just horrendous situations where they had to make really awful choices. Uh, and that's we should have both accuracy, which means admitting if, okay, maybe you could be admitting where there are things that are uh, unpleasant and uncomfortable, um, but also not, um, you know, I, I don't think getting into what are, uh, I think, uh, problematic assertions about his, his, his moral character and how awful it was. Uh, but definitely uh, take responsibility for that as Catholic, something you should do uh, within the church's history. Um, and that's a good one. Oh, pretty well. Uh, that is the end of the lecture. Any questions about the, the topic or pious or the war or the Holocaust? Just so. Aren't there a number of saints that came out of? There, are, uh, there are. Well, World War Two, the not the camps. You know, um, man, the name the the, the Capuchin. Uh, what's the the one that died? The one that gave up his life to for a married person. What's his name? I should know it. Maximilian Kolbe, yes. Uh, Kolbe, there are a few, uh, I don't know if any, uh, there are a few that I know 
that have been beatified or they have clauses open who actually helped you? I don't think Colby did that, or did he not? No, I don't know. he just gave up his life for someone else. But there are, I know there are some Dominicans, I think, actually, they're, they have a cause for beatification uh, because of what they did. And yeah, there were um, Catholics who, and there were other Catholics who stood up to um, the Nazis. What they didn't do, and this is where, again, where criticism comes in, is they usually didn't do it specifically, they didn't specifically stick up for Jews. That's usually where a lot of the criticism comes. They didn't specifically, the condemnation of the Nazis were too general. They didn't come up and mention, specifically mention, hey, the Jews are being slaughtered here. Um, and again, do I think there's something to that? Depends, depends on the individual you're talking about. But no, and there were, and there were lots of, um, I think in Yad Vashem, there's something like over five, 545, the number of priests and religious who were listed there. And I'd like probably more, they just don't have knowledge of all of them. So, um, but there were Catholics who did something. Again, what's in the back of all this, of course, is that a lot of people did nothing, and it was most Catholics, most people. And again, it's a hard thing for people to kind of come to grips with, I think sometimes you don't need to blame, which, again, I'm not saying that Pius is totally without blaming this, but I think it's excessive. Um, sorry, I did my teacher thing where I, I go on for five minutes, but yes, there were some, there were some. Not specifically, I don't think, for, for rescuing Jews. Although it wasn't Oscar Oscar Schindler was a was a Catholic by at least not practicing. I think he was actually from Schindler's List. I'm pretty sure he's mm -hmm. Catholic. So there were some people there. There were some people. Raymond for certain of it. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Do you know if that rabbi, Jewish rabbi, mm -hmm. was in Italy? Did he actually convert because of Pius the Twelfth? You mean the chief rabbi of of Rome? Exoli. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, he did. Name? did I can't remember his name, but yeah, if you don't know, uh, this is again another evidences of his uh, personal relationship there. The Chief Rabbi of Rome was so grateful what Pope Pius did uh, after the, well, part of for gratitude, but also uh, he became Catholic Board. Actually, actually took, uh, upon baptism, he took his name, Gendio, when he was baptized. So, uh, but yeah, it was under his influence, yeah, certainly. Again, he was not, I don't know, anybody can argue his personal influence, that makes no sense. But, um, but the excess is what he is, but yeah, but yeah, there's, there's those sorts of, I, I left a lot of stuff out for the sake of time, but that is one of the things you could use his, uh, in his defense personally. Um, and again, I, I, I yeah, it, it, it was a tough, it's a tough thing uh, to think, because you want to think that Catholics would always do the right thing, they would all stand up and they, and they didn't, but as I'm sure you know, everyone has free will leading to prejudice, fear, stuff like this. And again, it's a different situation where you curse, okay, Okay, you might get killed. It becomes you can't demand people be martyred. You just can't. And I get I get the sense that a lot of times the critics of Pius wanted him to sacrifice all of his priests for more Jews to live, and I just I don't think you can demand that of someone. I think it's unreasonable. So were there a lot of people leaving the Catholic Church, the Christian faith, to not be them, or are they going to vote? Are they going to forbid a new vote, or is it just one vote? Oh, you mean in terms of like a Nazism? Yeah. There were some, there was, for them, there, that's a good question in terms of like how compatible people thought Nazism was uh, with, uh, with like Christianity. Yeah. For the most part, Christian leaders knew it wasn't. <laughs> right. Uh, I had people on the ground, partly, partly for nationalistic reasons. Um, Hitler, you have to understand, Germany was a bad place in the 1930s. He, he made them feel proud of their country again. And um, I'm sure there was a fair number, I don't know for a fact, but I'm sure there's a fair number of people. I mentioned during the war, uh, there were bishops hesitant to criticize the Nazis because 
it's wartime. You don't want to criticize your country during wartime. And that was a real pull on them. So um, I'd say probably some of that. But I think it, I think most educated people understood you couldn't square the idea of one race being superior to all others. Because you had folks repeatedly said there's only one human race. But over and over, there was no question about the actual teaching. Of course, there are all sorts of people who know the church is teaching their own thing. But uh, I don't know people left uh, this. I do. I didn't mention this at all. But there, the uh, uh, Nazis did try to co-opt all the, uh, the Christian churches in Germany. They tried to actually establish what they call the uh, a Reichschurch, where literally they tried to amalgamate all the Protestant churches anyway under one umbrella. Um, uh, there were, by the way, pastors who did resist. And I know who Martin Niemöller was. He's one of these famous. You ever heard the phrase? First they came for the so and so. Then they came for. That's Martin Niemöller. That was the phrase. And then uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who did this, who was executed for trying to assassinate him. There were some Lutheran ministers, evangelical ministers who did. Um, but on the whole, they just, uh, I'm assuming, again, fear, lethargy, and people, I, this is a big debate, by the way. Um, I mentioned Daniel Goldhagen. Uh, um, uh, his uh, jaundiced view of, of bias in the Catholic Church. He published a book in 1986 called Hitler's Willing Executioners, in which he argued that German people weren't just, they weren't just passive in the face of the Nazis, they were actively wanting to kill Jews. And um, some of them were, but mostly they weren't. That, 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 again, I think people are looking for, they want to think people that do evil things are always malicious, and they just do it sometimes out of self-interest. Um, you know, it's not, not a matter of faith. I, I assume a lot of it is, you know, look, that, that phrase, Mark, I may remember the exact phrase, Martin Muller. First they came for the Jews, I wasn't a Jew, then they came for the whatever, then they came for me, there was no one to sneak up to speculate. Right? The whole idea is you don't care what happens to somebody that's part of an out group. They're not your people, so you don't worry about it. And that's kind of, I think it's more like they just didn't, didn't worry about it. Uh, and there's still debates about, like, what did the German people know and when did they know it, right? There were, there were rumors, probably as early as 1941, bad things were happening. People didn't necessarily know exactly what things were happening. Again, the Nazis tried to keep this basically a secret. So, but it started leaving the church. I don't know there was a mass, mass exodus from the church. It's just people who were in the church that didn't, again, not everybody's brave. You would have risked your life to oppose the Nazis. There were some, by the way. There was a group of uh, students, University of uh, Munich, I think, uh, called the White Rose. It was a, a, a student, there were Catholics involved in it. Um, they issued a bunch of pamphlets in 1943, I think, uh, denouncing the Nazis and talking about them uh, in pretty harsh terms. Got back to them, and the, the six main leaders were killed. Um, uh, and so occasionally, it but every time it happened, it, it didn't it didn't end very well. I mean, um, uh, again, I think I think this is a matter of the power the Nazis wielded. You needed to have you needed to have a big army to stop it at that point. Oh yes. This is complicated, but yes, this goes back to the Gospels. And it would take a whole other talk. I am, I am planning a talk on next year. Can you just talk about the legacy? And I'm like, I assume that's where it kind of Sure. Well, okay. go to the Gospels. Again, one of the things about the Gospels you have to remember, there are, to put it in these ways, antagonistic statements against Jews in there. When the Gospels were written, Christianity, first of all, the synoptics, it was basically a Jewish sect. My point is, Christians were a tiny minority when those books were written, meaning, they were the ones being persecuted. So there's a, a different power. There's a resentment for that reason, of course, which gets lost when Christianity becomes the dominant power. 
And so uh, things get, that sort of antagonism gets fed into a totally different society in Western Europe. And there's a lot more that goes into it, which I couldn't even have time to get into. But it's not just that, but it's not just like, um, uh, it's not just hatred of Jews for the sake of hatred of Jews. Um, again, this kind of goes back to critiques. I mentioned intra-Catholic debates. Again, one of the debates, people don't mention this explicitly, but I know people uh, have voiced this in other contexts, that one of the reasons why um, the Holocaust happened is because uh, the church is so exclusive about its beliefs. That is to say that the church is the one true church, salvation alone comes. In other words, its exclusivity is what leads to something like this. And therefore, it needs to drop. Again, it's this insider-outsider thing. Uh, you let the outsider Jews die. Um, I don't agree with this, but that seems to be in the, lurking in the background of all this. Because one of the things that comes through really, really, like, again, I understand some of the critique that, for example, Pius was more concerned about Catholic institutions than he was about saving Jews. I'm like, that's his primary responsibility is to take care of Catholics. His pre What's he supposed to do? Let them all, you know, he, he doesn't have a right to risk their lives for them, does he? And this is where things, because it, it is true, by the way, that was his first thought. What do I do to say, baptize Catholics first? And by the way, that in certain countries, that meant if there were Jews there, if there were baptized Jews, and, and they would save the baptized ones first. Um, they, again, you're in a situation, like, if somebody criticized me for it, I'd say, look, you're in a horrible position. What do you do? And maybe you can say, look, and look, our faith is mar martyrological. We, sometimes we are faulty of our lives. You first. I'm not impressed by armchair martyrs who demand this stuff on 75 years after. I'm not. It, makes me, it doesn't make me angry. I get the criticism. I don't get the vitriol. But it is, it is legitimate criticism, though. It's not, it's not unreal. But then again, other people put in really bad situations. Uh, I'll give you an example. This is something that's very touchy, and it's a very touchy subject. There were Jews who were sort of forced to collaborate with the Nazis. You don't know about this. The Nazis set up um, Jewish councils, Judenrats, where they went to places like Poland to sort of organize Jewish ghettos so they could, and basically so they could sort of find out how many they were, organize them, deport them later on. Uh, there have been accusations over the years that certain Jews did this willingly, stuff like this. This is really nasty stuff, but again, it's under the foot of death. So my point is that sometimes people make, make this happens all the time in history, and controversial things like this. Whenever a historian or uh, an author wants to look, has a figure he wants to exonerate, he'll start contextualizing it and talk about how nuanced and complex history is. And by the way, they're right. History is complex and it's nuanced. But when it comes to someone they already don't like for ideological reasons, devil himself, no more nuance. And again, I get it. You can criticize bias. Let me say this again. I actually accept some of the criticism. But I, I, I'm sorry, he's not the devil. Um, uh, but it is, it, and I, I can tell this really bothered me reading this, by the way. Not just the criticism of bias, it bothered me Catholic Vivian more, it really does. Uh, it was always depressing reading through some of this. Uh, not pious, he did he did do some things. He did, I think, what he thought was right. I don't think he got up in the morning saying, uh, screw the damn Jews, it's gonna take care of him. He didn't do that. He did weigh these things. He may disagree with decisions, maybe they were wrong. Uh, but I do think, it, uh, I did think he was a more serious man in some way than well, I was just going to, I looked it up myself, I was going to ask him what percentage of Germany was Catholic, you know, at the time. According to Wikipedia, yeah, it was about, it says here, it said there in Wikipedia, it said that 
1933, it was like 60-30 in terms of Protestant versus Catholic. Yeah, there was a big minority in the South, uh, majority in the South, uh, minority everywhere else. Yeah, and then it says by 39 because they had already annexed Czechoslovakia mm -hmm. and um, another predominantly Catholic country. The percentage it went up to about 40% within that whole area yeah. of Catholic. Sure, yeah. Um, but Most still about a majority of the nation. Yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. But I, and again, this is the thing. And this is the thing again. To I don't want to slam the critics of bias too much. For the most part, nobody really cares. That's what bothers people. Right. And I mean, I, to give you another example, I mentioned the Evian Conference. If you don't know, the uh, Germans uh, had their military capability restricted by the Versailles Treaty in World War One. 1935, Hitler announced he was going to break the treaty. We're going to start rearming. A year later, um, the Rhineland area between France and Germany had been demilitarized. So they couldn't occupy it. He marched 22,000 troops in the Rhineland area, and um, but Hitler's army wasn't ready for war. He knew that. He gave his troops uh, orders to turn back if the French saw the French army coming. The French had twice, three times the amount of soldiers there. They could have, they could have gone in there and taken them out if they wanted to. Uh, the French, and again, to be fair to the French, their their populace is tired of war. All they had to do was send their army in there. I think it was right and wrong. But it convinced them they wouldn't do anything. Uh, and again, if you're going to criticize Pius, where's the? By the way, I hate to I hate to break it down in these terms. Almost every critic of Pius, cultural on the cultural and political left. Almost every defender is on the cultural and political right. I'm guessing I'm, I'm kind of a culturally conservative guy. If you haven't noticed, um, uh, the government of France in the 1930s is Popular Front. Popular Front is a leftist coalition. Again, FDR doesn't get hit like this. The Popular Front doesn't get hit like this. Uh, why Pius? Uh, uh, and so, you know, again, I, the biggest thing is the Nazis, because the, going back to the legacy of anti-Semitism, um, look, people were comfortable with treating Jews like dirt, to be honest with you, right? They weren't. Uh, they had been over the, over the centuries. Not like this. But again, when you started, you know, stripping them of their, of their citizenship, doing all those things, why didn't you know, people, you know, why didn't they know something worse was coming? I, I think that the simple answer is nobody thought that anybody would be crazy enough to try to off 11 I mean, it really is, you think about it, it's almost hard to imagine. And again, the Nazis, it's weird. If you, uh, historians, academic historians, of which I've won, like make fun of the History Channel, the History Channel. But you understand why, because every time you think you learn everything you know about the Nazis, something always surprises you with how crazy they were. They're just always surprising with, like, they just, they did things you wouldn't think, they did things normal people wouldn't do, which is why people, I don't think, anticipated what Uh, and unfortunately, people, are, people in the Catholic Church, as I'm sure you're aware, are mostly perfectly normal. Well, I, 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 I can't tell you the specific quote, but I, I remember when I was, I don't remember where I was reading this, but Hitler, when he was first getting, you know, Nazi Germany going, he rebuilt mm -hmm. and everything, he said that, I think it might have been Mein Kampf, maybe, I don't know, but he respected the Catholic Church as a powerful institution. And yeah, they did say, I mean, and he said, he was like, yeah, yeah I, but he, he didn't think that they went far enough because the Catholic right. Church didn't command its own army, it didn't command its own nation. Right. So basically, he said he was like, okay, they, and like you mentioned, they're basically a, a lower on the totem pole, so I need to get out of my way. Sure. They, he saw how how much that Catholicism controls the people's lives in terms of sure. like if you're if you're a practicing Catholic, your life revolves around it. I should so. point out he, he said things in public he didn't mean at the time. Right. In private, he had kind of things like and by the way, the contempt comes through like. Hitler and his inner circle, they thought the church was too Jewish in its origins. 
uh, it was a sort of form of Semitism that had existed. It's irrational hatred of, of Jews. Uh, but yeah, they would say things like that. They said a lot of things. Um, and again, this is this is like, it goes back to just the, the Nazi mentality. They didn't respect law or anything else. Again, this is where people like you know, criticize Pius. Why did you bother respecting this court? Because they didn't respect it. That's kind of what made Pius a civilized guy, unlike Hitler. <laughs> he did respect the rule of law. But it still is difficult, obviously, issue uh, 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 to deal with in any way. Uh, any other questions or things? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> um, I have a semi-unrelated question. Probably should have asked this earlier, but um, prior to giving these lectures, when you're doing your research, how do you go about distilling between, you know, like dubious mm -hmm. and solid resources? Because there's so much information out there. So. There is, and that's the thing is that um, it's like I go to my students <laughs> when I, I teach them how to do research. Basically, anything that has like um, first of all, anything has the imprimatur of, uh, of an academic institution. Press, university, stuff like that. Uh, I'll admit, by the way, I wouldn't do this because, again, you have to kind of know, you have to be adding an academic to do this. Like, you, you can use things like Wikipedia if you check their sources. Like, you go to some pages, they're really low sources, or you can go back and check it. Some of those are okay. Um, but you just, it, it's something you kind of have to learn. It's like, um, it's like learning to do, do things, it's like learning to do, do things in the medical field. I can tell, give you instructions, but I have to actually probably have to show you. Uh, it's something you just kind of like have to, have to show how to do it. Like, this is that, this is more. Because most of the stuff I, you can find a lot of stuff on the internet that's just fine, actually. Uh, stuff I use for this, by the way, uh, US Holocaust Museum is good, Yad Vashem has stuff on it. Um, in terms of the stuff about uh, like the Pious War, stuff like that, a lot of the, a lot of the debate didn't go on in academic journals, it went on in popular stuff like uh, Commonweal, America Magazine, The New Yorker, New Republic. Um, first things, these magazines where they basically in book reviews went back sniping each other back and forth. Uh, and so you learn things, you learn well which book reviews to read. Is it, is it, is it big, like you learn, okay, who's the big star on the if he reviews something in the TLS, the Times Literary or something, or in the New York Review of Books, those sorts of things. Um, it's knowing who and whom and, and what and what. I know that's not, that's not but that's, yeah. that's the way you do it. Yeah, you find sure. out who the scholar is and who's been doing it. And plus, I just kind of knew because this stuff. This spilled over from the popular world to the academic world really quickly. And from there you go to, you find out where the academic works are, you read reviews of them, you get a sense of where people are talking about what they're, what they're talking about. Um, and I do sense, by the way, that I don't mean to criticize everybody who's a critic, the academic critics are more restrained. They don't dump on pious quite as much. Um, I still disagree with them to a certain degree, but they're, they're more fair, especially, again, the, the older this gets, the more other things will fade away in the background, I think hopefully in time we will get. But I don't think I don't think we can have a real neutral view of the guy at this point. It's just too all the issues involved are too too fresh, too visible. But that's how you do that. It's like you, you find the scholars that are big, you go from there. Um, it's tough. That's what that's what takes the most time actually. Any other questions? guys for coming out. Very appreciative of you. Very appreciative of you. Uh, if you haven't already, like the Facebook page, Controversies in Trish History. Uh, follow it. Stay on the lookout for updates. Uh, my website can be up. Uh, oh yes, and, and again, I'm putting up polls on my Facebook page asking people 
what they might learn about next year. Uh, so that, uh, but thank you guys. That that is all. Thank you guys for coming. We'll see you hopefully hopefully uh, in the fall. So yeah. Ah, oh, thank you, Richard.